whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing that is in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will be in no way I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading. Thanks Jane. I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Paul McKendrick. I'm the pastor here. You haven't seen me for about four weeks but that's some people when they came in and I was at the front door welcoming they thought oh you've decided you've got to go to the back to you to start before you can get to the front. Got to work my way back. Uh, it's good to be here. It's good to be back. I haven't preached for four weeks, so we might be a little bit uh, rusty. But uh, Let's ask God to help us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for this morning. What a privilege it is to be here. We thank you, Lord, that as we look into your word, you speak to us through it. We pray, Lord, that as we look into your word this morning, that you'll challenge us, that you'll encourage us, that, Lord, you'll change us by your word and by your spirit, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to my great surprise last night as I was sitting down icing my leg after trying to play hockey again yesterday, um, uh, we were sitting down as a family and the film that came on at 7.30 tonight was The Castle. Now, I've seen The Castle many times, but my children haven't seen The Castle, so it was great joy for me to, stand, to sit there with them and watch it. And at the end of it, one of my uh, sons say, that's got to be one of the funniest films I've ever seen. It's a great film. If you haven't seen it, grab it. It's well worth looking at. It's a film about a typical Australian family who are about to have their house compulsory taken off them. And Daryl Kerrigan fights to make sure that that doesn't happen. That's the father. And as you see the story, there's lots of really funny parts to it. He uh, talks in typical lingo. One of his sons, every mealtime, opens up the paper and he's looking through all the buy and sell ads and he says to his father every time, he says, Dad, a pair of jousting sticks. What do you reckon about that? He says, what are they asking for him, son? 450. Tell them they're dreaming. Offer them 250. 
and a whole lot of things like that and the barbecue sauce is on the table, the VB bottle's there and he loves whatever meal comes to his table from his wife. His wife puts a meal down in front of him and he says, what's this, Dale? They call them rissoles, darling. Rissoles? How good are these? And this, but everyone has rissoles, says mum. Nah, not like yours, darling. It's the herbs you put in them. It's what you do to them. Who'd go out for a meal when you can come and eat this every night? That's a great show. And there's one part in the show, they go up to Bonnie Doon to catch carp. And uh, he's standing on the, on the balcony. He's looking out across this very dodgy lake. Uh, he's, he's watching his uh, daughter, daughter and son-in-law as he's kickboxing against, I'm not too sure what. And then he looks out there and he says, isn't it great to see them have a passion? Everyone has got to have a passion, darling. Everyone has got to have a passion. It's a great line, isn't it? I don't know whether you've noticed it in the, in, the thing, in the film before, if you've watched it before, but because I was thinking about what we were speaking about today, I thought, ah, oh, how good is that? Even Australians can have passion. Not just Americans and not just Italians, but Australians. It, it, it's something about us, isn't it? Isn't it great when you see someone who is passionate, who is just driven by something and not by chocolate, uh, not by just the sake of uh, getting out for a good surf, but when they're passionate about something that changes the world. Uh, you've seen some guys go through this place over the time. They've had a great passion. Dave Pym had a passion to go to Africa. It was his driving force. He wanted to make sure people throughout the world could know about Jesus. He wanted to go to Africa and he's there now. Nicole Linklater, who came through, who's also in Africa, out there telling people about Jesus. They were driven by a passion, weren't they? A passion for people, a passion for people to know Jesus. How great it is when you see people who have that. Well, I want to encourage you this morning to have that. If you don't already, to maybe catch a glimpse of it this morning. Uh, in the passage that we just read from Paul, who's writing to the church in Philippians, he is a passionate bloke. These snags that we've got these days have nothing on Paul. Paul is a sensitive, new age, gospel guy, isn't he? If you read that passage, just look at it, it's up on there on the screen. What are the things that grab you? It's just belts out you know, you're like a loud megaphone of his passion. Do you see what his passion is? What's Paul's passion in that passage? Or who is it is probably a better question. It's Jesus, isn't it? It's Christ. It's Jesus Christ. It jumps out at you. He mentions it so often in there and he talks about it as though it's something that not only drives him but it makes sense of his past, it makes sense of his present and it makes sense of his future. It has a whole encompassing thing of life. His passion for Jesus drives his life. Now, if you want to see where Paul gets his passion from or why he has that passion about Jesus, if you've got your Bibles at this point in time, because it's not up on the screen, jump across a page or two to chapter 3 of Philippians. And I hope that today that those of you that are reading Don't Waste Your Life will see that this is Piper's, John Piper's passion as well. That as you go through chapters 1 and 2 are pretty tough to work out what he's on about, but chapters 3 and 4 he just comes in with a fantastic couple of chapters about what he wants us to grab and it takes it from here of Paul's passion is John Piper's passion 
So if you get to chapter 3, have a look at what he says there in verses 7 to 9. So jump down a little bit. It says this, But whatever was, whatever was to my profit, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. You see, Paul's passion is Jesus because he knows what Jesus has done for him. Paul's passion is for Jesus because he realises that all by himself he has no hope of being right with God. Now, sometimes I think, and I think Australians think this, that basically if we're doing the good things or if we obey the law or if we do the right things, then we're going to be right with God. Now, the hard thing is that when you have a look at Paul, he'd have more right than any one of us here sitting in this room to be right with God. In the passage just before this, he talks about his qualifications. He was a Jew of Jews. He was born into the right family. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He grew up understanding all that there was about the Old Testament law to the point where he became a Pharisee, where he knew the law back the front. He became one of the top-notch guys in the Jewish religion. He was up there to the point where when the Christians came around, he decided that they were wrong and he went out to kill them. And then on a moment on the road, in the middle of nowhere, he came face to face with the risen Jesus and just blew his socks off. At that point in time, he realised that everything that he'd done before was, as he said here, rubbish. He couldn't be right with God by being a Jew of Jews. He couldn't be right with God by following the law. He couldn't be right with God by doing all the religious stuff because he still did things wrong. He still sinned. And something had to be done with that. To be made right with God means that we need to have everything that's wrong within us removed so that we can stand before him. And Paul fell to his knees before Jesus and realised that when Jesus died on the cross, he took everything. His death was Paul's death. His death took all Paul's sin upon himself. And Paul laid his life before him and realised there was nothing, absolutely nothing he could do apart from trust in Jesus because Jesus had done it for him. And from that moment on, his life was transformed. His life was changed. From killing Christians, he became a Christian. From wanting to destroy Christians and Jesus and the whole thing, he became one of the biggest and probably most famous persons who were out there telling people about Jesus. A complete transformation. And he knew that it wasn't the fact that he was telling people about Jesus that made him right with God. It wasn't just because he started to live for Jesus that made him right with God. He knew that it was only Jesus who made him right with God. And so he counts everything as loss apart from knowing Jesus. You see, I think that often we think 
that it's a matter of just following a number of rules. You know, the Ten Commandments. Well, if I keep the Ten Commandments, then I'll be okay. I think we've just realised this week through the NRL that when you place rules around people, it doesn't change the heart of people. The NRL have had rules about how people should treat women. The NRL have had rules about what they should and shouldn't be doing. But that doesn't change the action, does it? They need to have something changing on the inside. And that's what Jesus does for us. He changes us on the inside. He transforms us from the inside out. He gives us his spirit so that we can live with him. But he makes us right with God because all of his righteousness becomes our righteousness. All of who he is becomes us. And so because of that, Paul says, I'm going to live every moment for him. That's stunning, isn't it? That's amazing. I don't think we completely understand that. I don't think we're going to completely understand that until we get to heaven. But if we can just grasp hold of a smidgen of how phenomenal it is that Jesus should die for you and me when we don't deserve it, it will ignite within us a passion for him. If you're reading Don't Waste Your Life and you're feeling that you can't get much further with it, please read chapter 3. It will blow you away. I hope it will give you a, a slight glimpse, a broader picture of just how phenomenal the death of Jesus is. It's stunning. You see, Paul understood that and then he can come out and say what he does here in chapter 1. Paul understood that it's all about Jesus and who he is. And so when he looks at his life in the past, he can understand it. When he looks at his life now, he can understand it. When he looks at his life in the future, he knows what he needs to be on about. And that's what we're going to do now. Quickly, just go through this passage and just see what Paul understands about that and and see how he understands his past, see how he understands his present, see how he understands his future, and then hopefully we can do the same. So have a look at what he says in verse 12. We've got that up there. It says, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Well, what's happened to Paul? Uh, If you were here during one Timothy uh, and two Timothy series that we did, or if you haven't been there, you'd know that Paul is in jail. Uh, He spent a lot of time in jail, Paul. Uh, He's got a lot to say about uh, everything's brilliant for him. It wasn't brilliant for Paul when he became a Christian. He had tough times. He's gone through some really tough times and here he's in jail again. He's been whipped, he's been flogged, he's been shipwrecked, he's had people wanting to kill him, he's been kicked out of towns, he's been thrown out of towns, he's been put in jail and here he is in jail and he writes and he says this, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That's stunning, isn't it? He's in this dark, damp, horrible place and he says, what happens here? He's actually good for Jesus. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? I wonder whether we could say that. Can you say that in the middle of some of the tough times that you've gone through that this actually could possibly be something good for Jesus? It's been good to spread the gospel, he says. And if you read some of the passage, you'll see that even while he's been in jail, there's been people out there doing under wrong pretenses and all sorts of stuff, but it's still progressing the good news about Jesus. So what's the driving force about Paul, how he understands the past? It's all about 
how it promotes Jesus. That's interesting, isn't it? Have you thought about your past like that before? How has your past helped to promote Jesus? How have you learnt more about Jesus through your past? What are the things that have gone on in your past that have actually maybe brought you to the point now where you understand Jesus? You see what Paul is saying here, that when we look back in the past, it's not about going back and just blaming it for why we are like we are. It's looking back to it and seeing, well, how has God worked in that and brought me to where I am? What has God done within that, in the good, the bad, the ugly? How has he helped me to understand Jesus? How has he helped to promote Jesus himself through the past? And even when it looks grim, you know, God is still at work. Some of you know Ros Cree. Uh, she's Steve Cree, who's the pastor or the minister at Southern Cross Presbyterian Church in Lismore. And some of you would know that uh, she was diagnosed with breast cancer sort of about this time last year. A horrible scenario. Uh, a month before, she'd had a breast scan. A month later, she has breast cancer. A month before breast scan is clear, a month after she has an aggressive form of cancer that needs to be dealt with. Uh, It was a horrible time for their family, some really terrible stuff, the chemo, the radiation therapy, uh, the whole aspect of how it impacted their family. Uh, From the outside looking in, it was horrible. Karina and I went and spent some time with Roz and Steve uh, near the end of last year when Roz had just finished her chemo and we were out having a meal with them we sat down and we were talking to them and Roz said straight to our face, she said, this has been one of the best things that has happened to our family. What? How does that work? She says, well, through this, we have grown closer to God than we ever were before. We have grown closer together than we ever were before. Stunning, isn't it? God worked a miracle through such a horrible event. And you see, God is working. That's why we sing that song, Blessed Be Your Name. Both in the good and the bad, God is at work. Sometimes in the middle of it, it's really hard to comprehend what's going on. But if we can keep a focus, that how can this serve Jesus? How can this help us to grow to be more like Jesus? You see, that's what Paul's about, isn't it? Paul is a Jesus-centred guy. It makes sense of his past, and now it makes sense of his present. Look at verse 20. I eagerly expect and hope that I will not be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. See that? His passion is that no matter what happens to him, now, right now, he desires that Jesus will be seeing how good he is. That Christ will be exalted, that Jesus will be exalted, that Jesus will be seen for how good he is in what he does right now. Paul wants people to see Jesus through his life. I was in Tasmania this last weekend visiting my family. It's the first time I've been back in four years. How's that? That's amazing, isn't it? Um, And 
not that I saw it this time, but my family are North Melbourne AFL football supporters. They're going through a tough time at the moment too. Um, but uh, they are mad keen. And when my mum and dad used to own a shop, they had their shop decked out in North Melbourne things. They used to have pictures of their premierships. I think there was one up there. Uh, no, they had a couple. Uh, they used to have different things around their shop that showed how much they loved North Melbourne. And at one point in time, they had this life-size cutout of Wayne Carey. Now, Wayne wasn't particularly good either, was he, at times? But um, Wayne Carey was like the... He was like a god to the North Melbourne football side. He was the ultimate in players. And he was a good player. Pity about the rest of his life. But he was a good player. And, and sometimes when you walked into their shop and you caught a glimpse of Wayne standing there in the cardboard cutout, you actually thought, could it really be him? Uh, it was a life-likeness, but it was only a cardboard cutout. You sort of looked, but you thought... Of, Nah, it's only two-dimensional, and he's hopeless anyway. He plays for North Melbourne. But, you know, it sort of grabbed you like that. What Paul is saying here about his life is that he wants to be not just a cardboard cutout look-alike of Jesus in how he lives, but a three-dimensional look-alike of Jesus. Not that we look at him and he's wearing sandals and has the same hair, hair and eye colour, but in his character, about how he lived his life about the same passions that were Jesus are the same passions of Paul. And I think that's what he's saying to us, isn't it? That what we are to be here is that when people look at us, they get a glimpse of what Jesus would be like. That's a challenge, isn't it? It's a real challenge, isn't it? That when people look at how we relate to them, when people look at how we operate in our business, when people look at how we deal with them down the street, when people look at how we play sport, when people look at how we operate in our families, when people look at how we drive our cars, they will see a glimpse of how Jesus would operate. That our lives are be lives that make Jesus or push to look to Jesus to say how great he is. Lives that don't detract from Jesus, but lives that exalt Jesus, as Paul says. It's Paul's passion, isn't it? That people will look to Jesus and go, wow. And that when they look at us, they'll say, how good is Jesus? It's a great aim, isn't it? It's a tough aim, but it's a great aim. If we come to that grasp of what Jesus has done for us and realise how enormous that is, when we grab a passion for that and trust in that and then decide, well, yes, I want to live for that, then that makes sense of what we do now. We have to be like that. We have to point people to Jesus in our lives. We have to show how good he is. But it also makes sense of the future. Of what are we going to do tomorrow or further than that? Look at verse 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's a big call, isn't it? For me to live is Jesus and to die is far better than that. Can we say that? Do we really believe that? Now, honestly, do you really believe 
that what we have here and now is going to pale into insignificance when we get to heaven. That the beauty that we see here, that the experience that we have here, that the love, that the joy, that all those wonderful things that we have here is actually going to be taken and blown even further and then even greater when we get to heaven. I reckon most of us haven't quite grasped that because I don't reckon I have completely. I love where I live. I love my family. I love the fact that occasionally I get down and walk by the water. I love the fact that every now and then I hit a decent golf shot. I love the fact that I can play sport slightly, almost still. Don't we? We, we? In one sense, we love where we live. And then we get a glimpse of the horror of where we live too. But heaven, as we've learnt, those that have been here when we preached on heaven, is going to be this earth transformed into perfection. It's going to be brilliant. It's going to be brilliant. I was talking to a bloke the other day and we were talking about health issues and he said, the good thing is I'm still here and they won't take me out of this world, out of this world without me kicking and screaming. I reckon you've heard that before, haven't you? I reckon have you heard the comment too, oh, How's the day been? Yeah, it's a good day. I'm still above ground. I'm not six foot under. Paul says no. He says actually it's going to be far better when I die. To die is gain, he says, because he understands completely what it is to be face to face with Jesus. He understands completely what it means to be experiencing God in his fullness. Whereas here it's sort of clouded and it's mixed up and it's sin-stained. He understands that. Now I think, I don't know, I need to grab more of that. I don't know about you, but I really need to grab hold of that. Just how wonderful it is to be in the, in the presence of God and Jesus forever. To experiencing that joy forever. Paul understands that his eternity is secure and he's looking forward to it. He's got that future. He knows it's there. He's looking forward to it, but he says, while I'm here... In the next day, the next week, the next year, however long God wants me to be here, to live is Jesus. See that? Jesus makes sense of his past. Jesus makes sense of where he is now. And Jesus is what it's on about tomorrow, the next day, and for eternity. Paul's not just hanging around for death to come either, is he? He knows how good it's going to be. But look what he says in verse 25. Convinced of this, he says, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ will overflow on account of me. Uh, if you've reading, been reading Don't Waste Your Life and you've been struggling, I hope that a little bit that you've been grabbing out of it is that what John Piper is saying is that the meaning, the essence, the wholeness of life is finding your complete and utter joy in God. That you find your, And he's going to go on to say that that means that you can find your complete and utter joy in Jesus because Jesus is God. He says to us, that that's what we've got to desire. 
in a sense, we are to be Christian hedonists. We are to pursue joy in Jesus like nothing else. Hopefully you've got a little bit of a glimpse of that out of it because that's what he's on about and that's what he's going to explain in the rest of it. And that's what Paul's saying, isn't he? He says two things, that your progress and joy in the faith, that you gain in that, that you expand in that, you become more in that, that becomes more and more, fills you more and more, your joy in the faith. That's your joy in God, your joy in Jesus. So that me being again with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. That is the joy of Jesus within us, knowing that he has saved us, knowing that we are secure in him, knowing that we are loved by him, knowing that we are to live for him just goes out of us and bursts forth from us. It's overflow he's talking about. It's not to be contained. It's not something that just sits there and waits. It's supposed to be bursting out of us. It's supposed to be coming out of every pore of our body. Now that doesn't mean that we need to go around and say praise Jesus every time we see somebody or talk about it in that sort of word and use that sort of terminology uh, because that scares people away. What we need to be doing is living for Jesus in everything that we do that when people look at us, they say there's something different about that person. There's something in them, their love, their joy, their understanding, their sense of security, their knowing that death is not the end. They've got a, a sense beyond that. They, they know why they're here. They're getting on with why they're here. That sort of stuff. Their compassion, their love, their sense of justice just bursts from them, bursts from us. You see, that's what Paul desires for the people in Philippi. That's what we should desire for the people around us. So what are we to do in the future? We're to be people who help others experience that joy. That's what Paul's saying, isn't it? He He wants the Philippians to grow in that joy. He wants more people to know about that joy. That's what our lives are about. To see other people come to know that joy and those that you know who know that joy to grow in that joy. That's what it's about. That's what we're on about. So can I encourage you to do it? Think about it. I'm not going to tell you every little way that you can do that. You can work that out. Think about the people around you. Look at the people that you have time with. Look at your friends, your neighbours, your family. Think about them and think about how can I encourage them to experience the joy of Jesus. If they don't know him yet, think about how you can encourage them to know him. Give them one of those essential Jesus books from out the front and say, hey, have a, have a look at this. This is really interesting. Invite them to church. That's novel, isn't it? Bring them along. Encourage them to come here. We're not scary people once you get inside. We might look scary sometimes, but we're not. Invite them along. Pray for them. Love them. Care for them. And the same for us here. How can we encourage the people that are around us here this morning? How can we encourage the people that are, uh, who aren't here today that are normally here? How can we encourage those that we're in growth group with? How can we encourage them to experience the joy of Jesus more? How can we be a positive impact on them? Praise them up. Tell them how great it is that you see them there on Tuesday night. Tell them how much you miss them on Sunday. 
Tell them how much you just enjoy the fact that you can sit down and have a chat to them about Jesus. Now, after going home this weekend, this is nothing against my family because I love them, but none of them at this point in time have said that they love Jesus. Um, But my whole weekend, my conversations with my family, great to catch up with them. But there was not one conversation that was on a mutual talk about Jesus aspect. Now, that's something I need to pray about for my family. It's something that really lays heavily on my heart. But when I got home, I went and visited a couple of people and a couple of people came over. I really saw the difference between my conversations at home in Tassie and my conversations with some Christian brothers and sisters here and just the freedom we had to talk about the joy that we have in Jesus, the freedom that we had to pray with one another about stuff going on in our lives and how Jesus can impact that. Don't take it for granted, guys. It's a wonderful privilege we have that we can speak openly and freely about how great Jesus is. Talk with each other about it. Encourage one another with it so that we encourage each other to grow in our joy, in our faith, so that we grow in our joy in Jesus Christ. So Paul's passionate about Jesus, isn't he? He's sold out for him. Every man's got to have a passion. Everyone's got to have a passion. Daryl Kerrigan, he was right. He was on the knocker, wasn't he? He was right there. And he didn't have to tell them they were dreaming at that point in time. It's true. And our passion can be Jesus. He makes sense of our past. He makes sense of our present. And he makes sense of our future. I pray that Jesus will be the passion of your life and will be the passion of our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we're just blown away by the fact that uh, you loved us so much that uh, Jesus died so that we could be right with you, so that we could stand before you and know that our eternity is secure. Lord, we thank you that we we stand before you, that our judgment will be welcome. Come Come to me, my son, my daughter. How wonderful it will be that day. Lord, we pray that as we think about how we are to live from here on, we want to take from what Paul's passion is, Lord, and we pray that by your spirit you will enliven that passion within us. We pray, Lord, that everything around us, everything that we do, our thoughts, Our actions will be driven by our passion for your Son, Jesus. (coughs) Heavenly Father, enable us to be passionate about you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.